This is the Human Action Podcast with your host, Jeff Deist. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special episode of the Human Action Podcast. Glad to have joining the show today, and I'm solo, no Bob Murphy, uh, Mr. Keith Weiner, who is the proprietor, the founder of Monetary Metals. Uh, he's actually in Auburn, so he's in studio this week. We're having our annual research conference, so it's a nice happenstance that he was able to join the show. And I know Edison Quale, who also works at his organization. And through Edison, I've come to know a little bit about what they do as a business. And uh, so I've kept up with and, and subscribed to their emails and their annual reports and other uh, products which they put out. So uh, very recently, the uh, Monetary Metals put out the Gold Outlook Report 2022. And uh, I believe Keith is the primary author of that. And so I wanted to pick his brain and, and speak more generally about gold and its role in the financial system. Keith, as you probably know, I'm a gold bug. Uh, you know, I've been around. And so I've suffered through all those uh, terrible, uh, you know, the prices being manipulated and, and this and that. And, you know, why isn't it $10,000 an ounce? So I, I've been around all that. And I've been uh, obviously interested in the Bitcoin concept as well. So I've read up a lot about that. But um, I really appreciated your report. And I want to talk about it and tease out some of what you're saying here. So for starters, um, what are your thoughts? What's gold's role in the current monetary system, given all the depredations we know central banks are up to? Well, thanks for that uh, introduction, Jeff. Um, officially, gold, gold has been banished from the monetary system by degrees. First, we created a central bank in 1913 to begin to manipulate interest rates and finance the government's deficits. 1933, the dollar becomes irredeemable to American citizens, but still retains redeemability to foreign central banks. Uh, 1971, Nixon finishes that off and um, makes the dollar completely severed in any way, shape, or form from gold. So officially, it has no role. And in the early 70s, when they um, were talking about re-legal, so gold was criminalized mm -hmm. in 1933, as in go to prison if you got caught possessing it. So when they were talking about re-legalizing it in the early 70s, they were joking that, oh, it would probably go down to, I think it was seven bucks an ounce or some prediction like that based on its industrial value to... Um, plating electronics or something like that. Um, but gold absolutely did not behave as the, um, the Keynesians uh, you know, predicted, and gold still behaves as money today, not as a medium of exchange. It's not in circulation. Um, it's not generally accepted, or I should say not generally offered in payment. I think that would be pretty well accepted if it was offered, but I don't think people want to pay out their gold. Um, but it still behaves as gold in that there's still monetary... Um, reservation demand for it. And one of the most incredible things about gold, and I think I might have touched on this the last time I was here, is that for, you know, for thousands of years, we've been mining gold. Mm -hmm. Gold isn't really consumed. It's basically held. And you know, jewelry is recycled. Um, when people are buried with gold teeth or with jewelry, the grave robbers usually sooner or later get them. I don't want to think about that. Uh, gold sinks occasionally on ships, but then divers you know, eventually find a lot of them and salvage it. Most of the gold, virtually all the gold ever produced is still in human hands, and yet we continue to mine more of it. If there's some sort of satiation point of the market, we haven't found it yet after thousands of years. And, that, and that's exactly how you'd expect money to behave. There's kind of a limitless demand for money. So today, what is, what is the meaning and purpose of gold? If you don't trust the system, if you think the banking system 
we had a, a, a fascinating uh, talk this morning on um, how the Fed became or has become kind of the biggest savings and loan institution with its mortgage portfolios and how they've dishonestly altered their own accounting rules uh, and so forth. If you look at that and say, well, I don't want to trust that. I don't want to be a creditor to that. To own a dollar is to be a creditor, whether it's to the bank, to the, to the Fed, to the Treasury, you're, you're a creditor to the banking system. If you don't want to be a creditor to the banking system, um, there's one financial asset. I mean, you could buy an antique Ferrari, you could buy a cask of whiskey, you could buy a painting, but those aren't financial assets. There's one financial asset that you could buy. That is the thing that you don't want. If you don't want to invest and don't want to speculate and don't trust or don't like the return, and that's gold. You may be familiar with this. This is 2011, I want to say, when Ron Paul was still in Congress. He had an exchange with Ben Bernanke, then uh, Fed chair for the <laughs> Financial Services Committee. And Ron always loved to get into these esoteric questions. He said, Mr. Bernanke, what's a dollar, that sort of thing. And so he asked him about gold. He said, it's gold money. And Bernanke replied, no, it's an asset. It's a precious metal. But I wouldn't say it's money, which is a fair answer for, from a central banker. And then Ron said... Well, why does the Fed and, and why do other central banks hold gold? Why don't they hold diamonds or some other asset if it's not money? So I guess why do central banks hold gold? I think, um, you know, so I, I've never had a conversation with Bernanke. I've had some conversations with central bankers, one level down from that and two levels down from that. And not just domestically here, but around the world. The current crop, so, you know, if you go back to Volcker, Volcker's PhD dissertation was on the gold bills market. Mm -hmm. um, Alan Greenspan, you know, evaded and destroyed more understanding about gold since his 1966 article than most people will ever learn about gold. But the current crop, I don't think really gets it. They don't think they don't think about it. It's not in their minds. I don't think they get it. So if I recall, Bernanke's answer was tradition, which is, you know, it's one of those things that's both true and disingenuous. It's strictly true in that, you know, by the time he becomes chairman, there's some 8,000 tons, supposedly, which hasn't been audited, you know, since the 1950s, but there's 8,000 tons of gold on the Fed's balance sheet. You take over as Bernanke, you got other things to worry about, and I think that's absolutely true. And it would be a political firestorm, to say the least, if you were to talk about selling it. Um, they would all be aware of the firestorm that was created in England uh, or in the UK, I should say, when uh, Gordon Brown said, let's sell half the UK's gold. Mm -hmm. uh, that today is still referred to as Brown's bottom. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, from his perspective, it's probably easier to just let sleeping dogs lie. Um, of course, there's a rich history behind that, which I'm sure Bernanke would, being a PhD in economics, would be aware of. And that's why I say disingenuous as hell. That gold didn't get there by accident. It wasn't aliens that did a gold drop into uh, um, you know, Fort Knox or West Point. Um, and that's the part he doesn't want to talk about because that would revive what used to be called the currency debate. And I think that's probably would be his answer, history, but central banks still buy it, not necessarily the U.S. Fed, but other central banks are buying gold. Why, why, what's their professed reason? So um, I, I think, I mean, professed reason, they just say, well, you know, market outlook or whatever. But I think the um, the underlying reason, I mean, if you're Russia, it's pretty clear. You knew, I mean, Putin knew that he was planning this uh, this thing with Ukraine long before the rest of the world did. 
And um, when people say this is a game changer, now the whole world knows that U.S. can freeze the assets of you know foreign governments. I don't really think so. I think it was pretty clear that if you did something like Ukraine, that the U.S. and and the entire rest of the world, it's not just the U.S. but Europe, uh, the U.K., Japan, everybody is freezing or seizing um, Russian assets. Um, so if you're planning something like that, or if you think maybe in your future, I mean, if you're China and you think maybe in your future there's some adventure perhaps in Taiwan or Hong Kong that the world might not approve of, it might be prudent to have some. Um, I think largely they think of it as something uh, that whose price goes up. And so they, um, you know, their foreign reserves are either dollars or euros. And since the euro is itself a dollar derivative, and essentially they're all in on the dollar. And if the U.S. has a weak dollar policy, um, or the cycle is, is weakening, which is not the case right now, then um, they they are starting to become insolvent as their asset, which is foreign reserves, which is dollars, is going down, and their local currency is getting stronger. That that tilts them into insolvency and makes them weaker. So in an environment like that, gold would be a great hedge, just purely from a denominated in local currency, dollars going down, gold going up. So it's a, ba- a counterbalance, I guess. I don't think anybody's thinking about a gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, because they're all Keynesians, right? I don't, I don't, or to the extent they're not Keynesians, they're monetarists, which in my view isn't really all that different from Keynes when you get down to it. None of them actually want a gold standard anyway. They want to centrally plan their economy. They don't want a free market, as Mises envisioned and as we Austrians you know, talk about. And so I don't think it's some return to a gold standard. I think it's conventional, you know, sort of Wall Street analysis. Well, gold's going to go up when the dollar goes down, you know, kind of, kind of trade-off. So you have a section in this report called How Not to Think About Gold. So let's talk about how in- individuals ought to view it as opposed to central banks. Why should individuals uh, hold some gold? And I think your reasons are different, perhaps, than a lot of gold bugs. Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, the common reason is gold's going to go up. Look at all the money printing. Um, and I, I do think we're in a rising, I mean, they used to call me a per- perma bear in, in the gold bug uh, press uh, because there was a lot of years, let's say, not, you know, 2012 to about 2018, when I was not bullish uh, for the most part, with some exceptions on, on the price of gold. Um, and, um, and now today, I do think we're in, in a rising price trend. Um, but and how should an individual think of it? You know, if you own shares, that means you own businesses in an environment that is becoming increasingly fraught, you, you know, with peril for businesses. So I, I think it's something like 20%. I mean, I see different sources of the number. The Bank for International Settlements coins a term they call zombie corporations. So a zombie has profits less than interest expense. Right. And of course, interest is paid out of profits. So if you don't have profits, your profits are insufficient. You're basically dead. You're, you're walking, you know, walking dead with, you know, zombie. And um, zombies exist only by, you know, too low you know, interest rates and by really permissive credit markets where, you know, lenders are willing to lend to them. Um, something like 20% of the public, um, publicly traded companies are zombies. I mean, it's, it's, it's a stupefying number. And so, you know, um, and, and if you think the interest rate environment is, is going to be rising, which I don't, 
then it only gets worse because if you raise the interest rate, then those companies that are not quite zombie but near zombie will suddenly be under the new line. But it's worse because there are companies that aren't zombie whose revenues are coming from zombie companies, B2B service providers that suddenly will become zombie when um, when their uh, you know customers go under and so on. So we're in a really fraught environment with you know incredibly high you know valuations. So if you don't want to buy shares, then what's left? Well, you could buy bonds, which have the dual risks of one credit default um, and and you know unsound practices, unsound accounting practices uh, at the Fed and a lot of other places, um, and at the same time risk of rising interest rates, which means automatic losses for bondholders. You know, you buy a bond at 102 and it goes down to 98. You've just taken a four-point loss. Um, so you should think of gold as this thing that's a constant. And Warren Buffett derides it. Warren Buffett says, well, if you buy a lump of gold and put it in your desk drawer, 20 years later, you pull it out, you still have the same lump of gold. He derides that as a bug. But I would argue, especially in times like these, that's actually a feature. It's still the same thing after 20 years, which may not be the case for your shares in whatever darling, uh, you know, fang stock or meme stonk, as they call them on Reddit, uh, may not be the same, you know, 20 years. But one thing I think you point out is that the reason to buy it is not that it's an inflation hedge necessarily. Well, I think it is a hedge in when the dollar goes down due to monetary policy. But um, I feel like I'm a lone voice in the wilderness saying that Milton Friedman's truism, you know, inflation is over, always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, by which he meant rising prices, even though he was more than scholarly enough to make the distinction between rising quantity of dollars and rising prices. In that quote, he means rising prices. And um, I've been, before COVID even, I was writing a lot on what I call mandatory useless ingredients a term that I came up with in thinking about that they're forced to put ethanol or MBTE in gasoline. And so it's mandatory. It's useless. It doesn't add anything to the, to the gasoline, uh, but it adds cost. And so useless ingredient is something that you're forced to add as a producer. It adds to the cost and therefore the selling price. You know, gasoline's a very low margin business. You add 25 cents of cost to a gallon of gasoline, you'll add 26 or 28 cents to the selling price. Um, but the consumer doesn't value it, and in many cases, usually, in fact, doesn't even know that it's there. Yeah. So we've had a relentless rise of useless ingredients over the last four or five decades as we become consistently less and less and less free. Every company today has a compliance department, and that compliance department is basically making life difficult for everybody else. And then with COVID, we had um, first a lockdown, which just really... Um, sent you know supply chains into um, you know a, a real tangle, and then we had a very abrupt unlock, which causes a whiplash. So imagine you have this you know two inch thick steel cable, and then it's under enormous you know hundreds of tons of pressure, and then you suddenly you know sever it all instantly. It doesn't just drop to the floor; I mean it snaps back you know violently. So supply chain has been disrupted, shipping has been disrupted. Um, all kinds of, you know, snags where I think they're working it off now, but outside the port of L.A., you know, it was what a 90-day wait that ships would get there. And in fact, there were so many at anchor that all the anchored spots were taken up and then they actually had to drift and then use engine power to maintain position. And what does that cost, right? Then 
The third thing that you add to that is um, what I call trade war. So it's not just tariffs. So uh, last, I think, November, the Biden administration doubles, doubled the tariffs on Canadian lumber. Right, so you're going to get rising prices of lumber, obviously, in the U.S. Although, curiously, falling prices of lumber paid to the sawmill in Canada. Mm-hmm. So it's both rising and falling price at the same time. Is that inflation? Well, mm-hmm. um, and then, um, obviously, but not just tariffs, but also the sense that cer- certain jurisdictions may not be good from a supply chain risk perspective. So anybody who works in corporate supply chain is suddenly scrambling to figure out how do they switch jurisdictions and all the churn that creates. So both Intel and Taiwan's um, you know, leading semiconductor company, TSMC, are both each spending, I think, $50 billion building new fabs in the U.S. to onshore you know, a huge piece of the supply chain. Uh, then finally, you add green energy restrictions. So um, in the U.K., for example, to, at, at the same time, they passed two stupid laws. Um, hopefully, I feel comfortable saying they're stupid in this in this venue to this audience, uh, one banned basically demands bans domestic production of natural gas in the UK, and the other forces all of the former uh, you know, heavy industry users of oil and coal to switch to natural gas, which now has to be imported. Now you get a synergy between that and, of course, the logistics and shipping disaster that is the post twenty twenty you know world, and you can't um, you know import. Uh, you know, anything, Christmas tree ornaments or natural gas, or it becomes much more expensive, much slower, much more uh, cumbersome to do. And so, of course, the price of natural gas skyrockets. Um, then you add to that Ukraine, of course, which we won't even get into. But with, even before Ukraine, you know, the price of natural gas was up five or ten times what it had been. It was so bad that fertilizer producers were shutting down in the UK. So now you're going to have food prices and energy prices skyrocketing. My point of this entire uh, rant, this is non-monetary. Right. There's nothing to do with the Fed or the Bank of England printing, but you're having a real skyrocketing of the cost of energy, which means electricity, obviously fuel for cars, also the, the price of food, which is not going to be produced domestically with those fertilizer prices. Um, so, you know, price is skyrocketing. Um, and then the, the upshot of all this is don't buy gold necessarily expecting that the price of gold will go up to match the price of energy in this you know, bizarre UK world in which you've had this synergistic effect between a couple of stupid regulations, a lockdown whiplash, and now war in Ukraine has obviously only made the natural gas situation even worse. You have the synergistic effect where one plus one plus one doesn't equal three. It equals 313. And the price of price of all these things is is reflect going to reflect that, especially next year, uh, and the price of gold is isn't going to, um, you know, rise anything near that. All, all of which is just a fancy way of saying when the government reduces production or restricts production, everybody's impoverished, and there is no magic asset class that will somehow magically, um, you know, keep up, and you can be you know, unaffected by right. the impo- general impoverishment of what the government has just done. Now, let's also talk about, in addition to stocks and bonds, let's talk about commodities. You know, a lot of people think this is going to be a hot time for commodities. They're trying to figure it out. Um, and as you point out, the difference with gold and silver versus other ty- types of commodities like wheat is that you don't consume gold and silver. As a matter of fact, as you pointed out, it's still all basically on earth somewhere, all the mined uh, gold and silver to date in human history. So... People, I think, sometimes lump 
gold and silver in with commodities generally. And, and as you pointed out, that's a mistake. Yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, I'm going back to Menger, gold and silver are commodities. I mean, they're this tangible, physical thing that's produced. It's held in marketable form, which is the key for Menger. Uh, but in a certain sense, they're very different. Now, I, I, I do think silver is a bit different than gold in that some silver is consumed. Yeah, right. Um, industrially, right. And um, I mean, gold is consumed industrially, too, although you know, producers have a much greater incentive to reduce their product, consumption of gold. Uh, the gold that's used in electronics, say, is generally recycled. Um, we talk to companies that are in that recycling business of you know, getting back the circuit boards from your old cell phones and extracting whatever micrograms of gold may be on it because gold's 2000 bucks an ounce, right? I mean, mm -hmm. silver at 20 bucks an ounce, something just isn't as worth it. Although whenever the gold is being recycled, you get the silver back too. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very different because in, a, uh, in any other commodity, it's a supply demand market in the sense that whatever is produced by the miners or the drillers or the farmers is produced to be consumed. There's very little inventory now in the wake of all the supply chain disruption and in the wake of war in Ukraine, I think this is going to change. It probably has been changing already, that people are going to hold greater inventory buffers. So the entire long, uh, what did they call it? The, um, the new normal, the great moderation, that was the term I was looking for. In the so-called great moderation post-1981 to um, not just to 2008, but to, let's say, post-COVID, uh, there had been marked by a general decline in inventory buffers, increasing just in time. Um, I had a little invest investment in a company that was trying to be the Uber of, um, uh, you know, trucking. Like if you needed to get a load from, uh, you know, Bakersfield, California to Phoenix, Arizona, you'd go on their platform and book the truck that, mm -hmm. you know, to do that. And um, a lot of their customers were the grocery stores that were shipping the farm produce in from California and, and to Arizona was kind of the market that they had found for themselves. So I asked them and I said, for a typical grocery store, what percentage of their inventory is in the back room versus on the shelves versus on the truck? He said, basically, there is no back room other than what is actively being unloaded, you know, labeled, scanned, and, you know, At the staging to be put on shelves, like actively by employees. Um, and it was something like two thirds was on a truck on its way, and one-third was um, on the shelves mm -hmm. selling through. Like, the system had become so efficient that as the shelf is depleting, the next load is coming in. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that's going to change a bit. It's going to have to it's in response to the greater uncertainties of, of the current climate. Um, but anyways, you know, if, in a world like that, if all of a sudden the marginal supply of, let's say, nickel goes offline then the price of nickel could go up, what was it, 8x, something like that. Um, and then that's hugely disruptive, as you can imagine, to anybody using nickel. But it turns out, this is an interesting one, it killed uh, a nickel producer. And the reason is the producers hedge. They go and sell forward so they can, they can know what their margin is, and their, and their lenders, of course, want to know that, that they're not subject to all the variations in the price. Well, hedge means you open up a margin account and sell short. And then you, deliver, you plan on delivering into it later. And then if the price skyrockets, your uh, broker of that margin account says, please send more cash. Mm -hmm. And so you go to your lender and you're like, please give me more cash. And if the lender says no, 
you're in, in deep trouble. So ironically, rising prices, killing produ producers, which is the positive feedback loop that will lead to more uh, you know, further rises in price, at least for a while. Uh, gold and silver don't have this issue. You know, whatever is being produced by the mines in any given year is a tiny fraction mm -hmm. of what the stocks are out there. Mm -hmm. And all of those stocks that are out there should be considered to be potential supply at the right price and under the right conditions. If there's a strike at a mine in South Africa, it's immaterial uh, mm -hmm. to the gold price. Whereas in platinum, I mean, that could be a 50% surge in the price of platinum just on the rumor that they were going to go on strike. And you also point out that when we're talking about stock to flow in gold, we're talking about decades of mining, not just a year or a period, whereas oil, for example, can be very volatile in, ter in terms of the almost instant supply and demand, which is a, a very shortened time frame. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, I, I was writing about this recently. In oil, the amount of oil that it would take to buy a decent, you know, sort of near luxury car is something like a swimming pool full of oil. And it's smelly, it's toxic, it's volatile, um, and it decomposes when it's exposed to oxygen or sunlight. Um, so imagine, you know, selling or buying a car and how would you deal in all that oil? The amount of gold that it would take to buy that car would be the size of your iPhone and you put it in your pocket and walk down the street. Mm -hmm. And so um, you know, value density is one of the reasons why gold makes such excellent money and oil makes such poor money. Um, but, um, uh, you know, to the point being that there's very little inventory held in oil. And so you get these weird shocks. Um, so at the beginning of COVID, oil hit minus, it minus $27 a barrel, something like that, because the oil keeps coming out of the pipe. You can't just spill it on the ground. You have to pay to it's give it store. away. And you, and you needed somebody that had the storage receptacle to do it. And so the marginal storage receptacle was charging $27 a barrel rent, essentially is what it was. Now today, oil shoots up because, you know, supply disruptions. Um, and, and none of this applies in, in gold or silver. And what was that just maybe a year ago or so that that was happening with oil? Maybe spring, a tad spring, longer spring than that? Spring of 2020. Yeah. So I guess w one of the points you make is that there's just different fundamentals with regards to gold. That's as an investor or as right. someone looking to protect themselves. There's different fundamentals than stocks, bonds, commodities, other commodities. That's right. So um, we do a lot of work, and it's all published for free on our website, which is monetary-metals.com, at looking at the spread between the price of the futures market and the price of the spot market. And essentially what that is indicating is, um, so we measure something called the basis, which is future price demand of spot price, and then we annualize it so you can compare it to interest rates. Um, when there's a high and rising basis, that means the marginal buyer of gold at that moment is carrying it. That is simultaneously buying a bar, selling a futures contract, and pocketing the spread between the two, which if it's high means that's an attractive trade. If it's rising, it means it's more attractive today than it was yesterday, which means more people are doing the carry trade than yesterday. And if it keeps rising, so what that means is that leveraged speculators are buying gold futures in the expectation of a price rise. But if they're the only ones who come to the party who the leveraged speculators, then you have a bunch of people that are trying to front run each other. Eventually, you know, the last leveraged money comes in and there's nowhere for it to go, but uh, the price drops a bit. Whereas when you see a falling basis, which can go negative, which is a backwardation, then that means the marginal supply is coming out of the warehouse. A negative basis means that there's 
a positive return to be made by decarrying or lifting that carry position. That's your marginal supply, and people are stacking physical metal, pulling that all out. And if that continues to a certain point, obviously the warehouse will run out of, uh, and I don't mean COMEX eligible you know, uh, ounces, I mean actually pulling gold from all the places that it can be, not necessarily just in COMEX warehouses. Um, but if that continues to occur, then that backwardation presages higher prices and potentially much higher prices, depending on just how serious the public is about trading their dollars for gold. And right now, mid-March 2022, which of those scenarios are we in? We have a pretty high basis. So it is not, you know, so there's been a run-up in price. Obviously, it's backed off a little bit. Um, but there's uh, quite a positive carry in, uh, in gold. And um, there's no signs of, you know, that shortage. So, so I, I, I write, I, I used to write a lot more about this idea of backwardation in gold and when, when it becomes permanent. And um, the idea is that's a very dangerous thing. There never should be a shortage in gold because, as we just said, all the gold mined in 5,000 years of human history is somewhere. If there's a shortage to the market, what the shortage really is is a shortage of trust in the counterparty which means a belief that banking system default is imminent. That's a really bad thing that nobody should be wishing for. Mm-hmm. If you like your modern uh, you know, quality of life, uh, you know, electricity and computers and the internet and plentiful food, heating your house in the winter, if you like those things, you shouldn't want to see that. But it's coming because the dollar is on a self-destruct uh, trajectory. So... Your company's idea of actually paying interest in physical, just talk about that. I mean, I mean, what are you trying to do and what's your market? So, I mean, in, in the narrow sense, our market is people that have gold that rather than paying to store it. So typical storage cost is 0.75% per year, 75 basis points a year. You know, when the gold price is going up 15% a year, everyone's pretty you know, copacetic about that. When the price is going sideways, that starts to get old pretty quick. So we're saying, hey, look, instead of paying 0.75, we'll pay you two or three positive with no storage costs. Um, in the narrow sense, that's the market. The broader sense and economically what we're trying to do is, you know, I've asked the question, how do you get from here to a gold standard? I spent five years in Arizona trying to lobby for what started out as a gold legal tender bill that was watered down and watered down and watered down and uh, passed four times by a Republican-dominated legislature, vetoed three times by two different Republican governors. You know, I, I have good friends in, in, in the gold, you know, sort of wing of the liberty movement that still believe in, you know, fighting for better gold laws and they're having some traction in certain states, repealing sales tax on gold and things like that. But I, ca- I came away from that thinking that if, if we're going to move to a gold standard, it's not going to be because some legislature passes a great gold law. So how do you move? For, and anyways, how do you move from here to the gold standard? You have to get gold to, to remobilize as a vehicle for finance. That is, you have farmers, you have miners, you have manufacturers, you have truckers and shippers and distributors, you have retailers, you have craftsmen and all kinds of things. They all need finance to do what they do. All these things don't just come to market because of, you know, human willpower. You know, manufacturing a computer chip today, um, my wife works at Intel, and we were just talking about this the other day. 
that um, you know to build a fab nowadays is I think in the ten or twenty billion dollar range. So you know, in the old analogy of um, some billionaire wanted to get in the car business uh, many many years ago, and so he was going to invest a billion dollars. And the joke in the car industry was, "Please give the gentleman one white chip." Was a billion dollars, you know, and obviously you never win poker with one white chip. So the the white chip in the semiconductor business is at least ten billion, maybe more like twenty or twenty five billion. Um, all this requires finance. Today, that's dollars. And so, if we wonder why is the dollar so strong, what keeps us addicted to this thing, which is horrible and destructive and has all these, you know, cycles and uh, and gyrations, which are just killing people left and right. And uh, the central planners are just messing up our lives in so many ways. You know, what keeps us addicted to that? It's the struggles of the debtors. If you're a farmer and you owe a million dollars, you're going to grow. You have to grow as much wheat as you can possibly, you know, somehow figure out a way to do and dump that wheat on the market. And if you measure the value of the dollar by its purchasing power, every producer who's in debt, which is every producer pretty much, is constantly producing more beating themselves up to produce more to dump it on the market. Well, we have to find a transition path to where gold actually circulates as money, as, as a medium of exchange, I should say. And uh, the way to do that is to use it as a, a vehicle for finance. So the, the investor-facing side of our business is saying, we'll pay you interest on your gold. The other side of the business is finding productive businesses who need gold financing, who qualify for financing in gold as opposed to dollars. Um, and then, um, you know, recreating that market, which has been dead since 1933. And so there's a, there's an ideological component to what we're doing, which is to help the world return to a gold standard, uh, by making it profitable. You know, if something's profitable, people will want to do it. Um, so I was, I was fascinated in the entrepreneurship session, uh, just before, uh, sitting down to talk with you. And they're talking about how the entrepreneur tries to anticipate what the consumer, in this case, what the investor wants. And as an entrepreneur, my supposition is if it's profitable to invest your gold, then people will invest their gold. If it's not profitable, then they will simply bury it and hoard it, which is where the way the world is today. What keeps you up at night? Do you, is there a regulator out there or a law that keeps you up at night or a potential? Um, you obviously have to be very mindful of that. And um, we spend a lot of money more than I would like on lawyers. And <laughs> How much would you like to spend on lawyers, Keith? <laughs> zero? You know, in business, I'm not sure it would ever be zero because you have contracts and other things you're trying to do. But, man, I'd like to spend a lot less than I, than I spend. Um, we try to be very, very careful and walk a very tight line. Um, and, you know, some of the things I see in, uh, in DeFi, for example, and some of the epic tweets by some of those folks just astonish me that they would say those things and that those things are going to come back and bite them. Unfortunately, I don't think any of this should be regulated, but it is, and that's the reality. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, that said, I think we're very well lawyered up, and I think we're very careful. And so... And by DeFi, you mean decentralized finance? Decentralized finance, yeah. Um, you know, the SEC and CFTC are going to take aggressive positions on that eventually. I, I kind of think of that stuff as a steamroller. You know, it doesn't move very fast, but it moves inexorably. And when it pinches, your t finally catches up to you and pinches your toe, you know, it, it's over. And um, anyways, I, we're very, very careful. We're very well lawyered up. 
We don't do anything without consulting the lawyer. So of all my worries right now, that isn't the biggest. Um, I'm not sure there's any one. I think we're in a, you know, we're in a good place now where we've been um, very, very successful in doing another capital raise, which we're going to uh, announce pretty soon. Um, we're hiring people. We're growing, you know, client assets. We're growing um, the productive deals that are, you know, deploying the gold and paying interest. Um, you know, so so it's there's a whole bunch of things to think about and worry about, but I don't think there's a single overarching, you know, what about the regulators, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I'd, I'd say that's where we're at right now at this moment. So Keith Weiner, where can people find you? Where can they find Monetary Metals? Monetary-Metals, which is a plural with an S, metals.com. Um, and then that's where most of my articles are published. That's where our, we have some 60-some-odd different graphs that we update every day for free. It's all on the website looking at uh, gold and silver markets and all the different indicators there. Um, our economic analysis and research, like our gold outlook report, every year we've been doing for a decade. Um, all that stuff is right there. Thanks a million for your time. Thanks for having me. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. And in the meantime, you can find more content like this at Mises.org.